Well, we're going to come to a time now where we'll look at a passage of Scripture. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters to our lives here today. So if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of John. John chapter 14. If you're using a pew Bible, this brown one, it's on page 763. And when you found that, would you stand together with me and we'll read from God's Word. John 14, beginning at verse 1. This is taking place all at the Last Supper. Jesus has just washed His disciples' feet. He's just told His disciples that He's going to be betrayed. He's just informed Peter that He's going to deny Him. And in the midst of this confusion and chaos for all of His disciples, Jesus says these words, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, uh, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you all such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. This is God's word. You may be seated. Pray for us once more and ask God's blessing now on the preaching of his word. Living God, we come to you, the, the one true author of this book, expressed through so many different authors who you inspired to write. And we come now in humility. They come as those who want to place ourselves under your word and be instructed by it, be taught by it, be changed by it. God, you said very clearly that when you send out your word, it goes out with a purpose. And that it doesn't return void to you, it will accomplish the purpose for which you've sent it. God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us this morning. And as I always ask, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue now to speak your truth? Amen. When uh, I was in the last year of my undergrad, uh, being an education degree, I had a semester where I was a student teacher teaching uh, kids uh, kindergarten through grade three theater sports. Uh, uh, it, was, it was a pretty enjoyable time. We would... Uh, take time basically just helping kids explore their creativity, learn basic public speaking skills, all that kind of stuff. It was, it was a pretty good time. I was not awesome at it, but I had fun anyway. But one of the things I remember about that time that I consistently had to overcome was every time one of those kids would call me Mr. Parker. 
I mean, I'll just tell you, I mean, I love my dad deeply, respect him tremendously, and yet, every time one of those kids would say that, I would have an internal argument with them in my mind. I would just be like, why are you calling me that? Mr. Parker, that's my dad, okay? That's not me. So, I don't know, call me a teacher, call me sir, you can even call me Wes. Don't call me Mr. Parker. And I think actually the kids eventually caught on that I didn't like that, which of course only made them call me that even more. Now, some of you, for sure, maybe you're familiar with a recently kind of reinvigorated school of thought in psychology called family systems theory. This was developed first in the 50s by a psychologist named Murray Bowen, and the whole idea of this theory is that uh, the way we respond today to things like stress, uh, crisis, um, conflict, relationships, all these things, that it's deeply based out of your family of origin, the family that you grew up in, what you saw becomes your normal, okay? And there's no question, okay? Uh, even beyond genetics, there's a lot of ways that, that I act like my dad. I do. real simple way, I'll just tell you right now, is the way that I respond immediately with no to any unplanned request. Unanticipated request, I just say, no. Uh, uh, you know, Simon Sinek had his famous book, Start With Why. Me and my dad, we start with no. And then, you know, eventually, if it's a reasonable request, we can move to yes. But at least it gives us that buffer zone. We can start with no and then move on from there. But here's the point. A, none of those kids, not one of them, knew a thing about family systems theory, so they weren't judging it based on that. Secondly, me and my dad are individuals. We're individual people. We're different. There's no way that anyone could say because they knew me really well that they know exactly what my dad is like. It's not true. So, that's why I will continue to maintain to this day, my name is not Mr. Parker. <laughs> at, least, at least not yet. I think that's the title that's passed on to you, maybe. I don't know. Okay, we've got two weeks left now in this uh, series, this Advent series, Isaiah's Jesus, where we've been looking at Isaiah's description of what the coming Messiah would look like in uh, Isaiah 9-6, the description that he gives there. And you're talking about how Jesus was all those things when he came 2,000 years ago and how he continues to be them to this day. If you haven't been with us, uh, this is how Isaiah describes this coming Messiah. He says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, so far we looked at how Jesus was that child, son given, as well as the wonderful counselor, and we talked about how those descriptions really focus in on Jesus' full and true humanity. And then, last week, we, we transitioned with Isaiah as he talked about Jesus as the mighty God, which clearly is referring to Jesus' full and complete divinity. Well, today, Isaiah, he's going to continue in that second stream, that second focus on Jesus' divinity. Now, as he describes Jesus as the full and complete representation, the full and complete revelation of the Father, describing Jesus as he shall be called Everlasting Father, the Everlasting Father, which means that at least in, in, in one sense, you could say, very much opposite to me, Jesus doesn't mind being called Mr. God. He doesn't say, no, 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 that's not me, that's my father. 
I mean, remember what we just read in our passage. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, how in the world can that be? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we try to unpack uh, this passage from John 14. First thing we're going to do is we want to just examine Jesus' claim that he is this true picture. He is this true revelation of the Father. And then I want to begin just looking at two ways that Jesus reveals to us what the Father is like. Okay? And honestly, there's infinite ways that he does that. My brain kind of went into a little bit of spasm this week as I tried to think about all the ways that Jesus reveals the Father. So narrowed it down to two. We'll look at two ways that Jesus reveals to us what the Father is like. Looking at the fa- Jesus reveals the Father as a just judge as well as a gracious giver. A just judge. Talking about G- the Father's commitment to, to justice as well as his hatred of sin. And then also, Jesus reveals the Father as a gracious giver, which really expresses to us his love of sinners. So, we're going to examine Jesus' claim to be uh, this true representation of the Father, and then we'll see how Jesus reveals the Father as a just judge and a gracious giver. So, if you closed your Bibles, open them up again, please, to John 14. Follow along with me, and we'll dig into this together. So, let's begin by examining Jesus' claim to be the true picture of God the Father. Last week we looked at uh, how Jesus, as the mighty God, we saw kinds of places in the New Testament where Jesus says that he is equal with God the Father. He, he claims equality with God, which, of course, made a lot of people upset. People want to pick up stones and stone him. They didn't like hearing that. Well, now this week, we've seen in our passage already, Jesus also claimed to be the exact representation, the exact revelation of the Father as well. We see that in verses 10 and 11, at least, of our passage. Look here. Jesus says, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own, rather the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father. The Father is in me. Remember up in verse 7, Jesus goes so far to tell the disciples, If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. The degree to which you know me, you know the Father. Now, previous to this passage, in John 10, 30, Jesus is having a a discussion with religious rulers there, talking about his miracles, and he says there that he and the Father are one. So, once again, he upsets them, and they're ready to pick up stones to throw them, which seems to be a theme with Jesus and his interactions. I'm surprised that when the religious rulers knew they were going to be meeting with Jesus, they didn't just bring stones with them, because the interactions always seem to end up this way. So you got all these places anyway, okay? Jesus is describing an an intimate connectedness with the Father, which I think, first of all, is at least showing us again, it's Jesus' divinity. He is claiming divinity, full divinity. But I think it's, first of all, important for us to, to talk about what Jesus is not saying with these claims before we can look at what he is, because if we don't understand what he's not saying, we actually won't be able to get to what he's actually trying to show us. Now, So let's look at what he's not saying. Each week we've had to talk about how Jesus is both fully God and fully man. I don't want you to get tired of me saying this, but he's both. He is fully God. He is fully man. Two natures existing in one person. That's how the Bible describes him to us. And pretty much every week we've had to look at some kind of crazy uh, heretical teaching that somebody's come up with as they try to understand how that can be. And this week is no different. 
once again, now, now as we look at Jesus' uh, divinity, once again, his divine nature, we come up against a, a false teaching about him called modalism or Sabellianism, which uh, this has originated in the third century. But actually, even though in the third century it was condemned as a heresy by guys like Tertullian and uh, Dionysus, bishops of Rome, even though it was condemned, it's actually still taught today and believed by a number of different religious groups, uh, Oneness Pentecostals, uh, uh, TV evangelists like uh, T.D. Jakes. They, they believe in this theory of Jesus' divine nature. And the basic teaching of it is this. Uh, as we try to understand the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we try to understand what that is, we're not to see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as, as individual persons within the Trinity. No, no, no. We're supposed to see one God who who just expresses himself at different times in different ways or different modes, which is where you get the name modalism from. And as with all these other false teachings that we've looked at about Jesus, about the Trinity, when you look at the Bible verses, remember they they use some of these very verses to, to teach this, you can kind of see where they get that from. I mean, you pull it out of context, I mean, you can see, okay, yeah, that might, might be what God is saying. I mean, we have Jesus saying there that he is in the Father, remember? He's saying that, that to see him, we have seen the Father, and that seems pretty plain. In fact, one of the fundamental teachings of Judaism, out of which Christianity emerged, was Moses' words to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It's one, okay? So bringing all this together, and so it follows then, a modalist would say, that if there's only one God, then when we see God showing up different places throughout the Bible in different ways, it's not that there's individual persons of God at different times, it's just that he's just expressing himself differently. He's putting on different costumes, if you will. He's having different modes that he expresses himself in. Again, even though this was condemned as a heresy, it's still taught this day. The problem with this theory is there's all this other evidence in the Bible that happens to just show at least, at least a plurality within this one God. You might want to say there's only two, you might want to say there's more than three, but there's at least a plurality within this one God. And when we see that even right from the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1.26, God is creating humanity, and what does he say? Let us make man in our image. I don't know how you say that unless there's more than one there. And then I think you come to really irreconcilable problems when you come to the New Testament, places like Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1. Here you've got Jesus, the Son. He's coming up out of the water. Then sky is torn open. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And then a voice from heaven says, This is my Son whom I love. I I don't know what you do with that passage unless you want to imagine a, a God behind some kind of cosmic puppet theater trying to to act out three different puppets at the same time. And honestly, I mean, when trying to describe this passage from that standpoint of modalism, uh, you really have to do some kind of those crazy gymnastics, uh, exegetically, hermeneutically, to actually make it make sense. It, it, just, it just doesn't work to try to make that happen when you see this clear evidence that there is more than one that is a part of this one God, this plurality. So, if you don't know, what, maybe you're asking yourself, okay, well, what is, what is the biblical teaching about this uh, triune God? 
Uh, what's what's uh, the accepted teaching? Well, I'll tell you what's been accepted and taught and believed for the past 2,000 years of church history has been how we try to express in a limited way. It's never going to be full because we're finite beings trying to express infinite transcending God. But I think a helpful diagram that helps us to see what that's like. And we see that next slide. You've maybe seen this before, but this basically is a way that helps us to kind of think about how we have three persons in one God. We've got the Father, we've got the Son, the Holy Spirit. Each one, arrows or lines pointing in, says, is God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, all equally so and worshipped as God. And yet, each of these lines is showing us the distinction of persons, you see. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. The Father is also not the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. There is distinction within the persons. This has been the understanding of how you can have a three-in-one God, as much as our minds can understand it, throughout church history, barring some of these ideas, again, of people who've tried to understand how it is that it could be anything different. Okay, so how, how should we understand Jesus' claims? He's saying he's in the Father. He's saying if we've seen him, we have seen the Father. Well, again, the first thing we need to understand is what he's not saying. Jesus is not saying, I am the Father. He's not saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because actually I am the Father. That's not what he's saying. What Jesus is meaning to communicate, and what's been the consistent teaching as well of Jesus' relationship to the Father throughout and since the early church, is that Jesus is the one who perfectly reveals the Father to the world. He is the revelation of the Father to the world. He is the Father's ultimate self-disclosure. He is the one who shows us what the Father is like. That's why God sent him. So that's, how, that's why in places like uh, in our passage here, verse 1, look with me there. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You trust in God, trust also in me. He's saying, I'm, I'm revealing to you just what the Father is like, so you can trust in me the same way you trust in God. Why he can say in verse 7, the degree to which you know him, he says, if you really knew me, you would know the Father. The degree to which we know Jesus, we do know the Father, because he reveals the Father perfectly to us. Last Sunday, we looked at uh, Colossians 1.19, which talks about how God says he was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in the person of Jesus. Why would he do that? Well, we talked about some of the implications of that as it relates to our salvation. But just strictly on an interpersonal level, the simple answer is that unlike the capricious, uh, distant deities of uh, world religions, uh, Greek and Roman mythology, the God of the Bible is a, a God who desires to come near to his creation. He's a God who desires to be known by his creation and to make himself known, to reveal himself. We read about this particularly in places like uh, Hebrews chapter 1. I'll just read it for you. You don't have to turn with me there. Listen to what the author says here about Jesus. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us. He has, he has revealed himself to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He's a God who desires to show himself to us. He wants us to know him. 
uh, uh, if you've never read uh, the classic book, Knowing God, by pastor and a theologian and author, a now retired professor from Regent College, J.I. Packer, he gives a really uh, helpful analogy, actually, to, to understand why God was revealing himself perfectly in Jesus. Listen to what he says. Imagine we're going to be introduced to someone that we feel to be above us. Maybe they're in rank or intellectual distinction, professional skill, personal sanctity, or in some other respect. The more conscious we are of our own inferiority, the more we shall feel that our part is simply just to attend to this person respectfully, let them take the initiative in the conversation. Think about, he says, meeting the Queen of England or the President of the United States, how you would feel in that moment. We would like to know this exalted person, but we fully realize that this is a matter for him to decide, not us. If he confines himself to courteous formalities with us, we shall be disappointed, but we have no ability to complain. After all, we have no claim to his friendship. But, this is the key part now, but if instead he decides to start to take us into his confidence tells us, frankly, what's in his mind on matters of common concern, and he goes on to invite us to join him in particular undertakings that he's planned, asks us to make ourselves permanently available for this kind of collaboration whenever he needs us, then we shall feel enormously privileged, and it will make a world of difference to our general outlook. If life seemed unimportant and dreary hitherto, it will not seem so anymore now that this great man has enrolled us among his personal assistants. Now, this, so far as it goes, says Packer, is an illustration of what it means to know God. He hasn't kept us far off and just said, you know what, I'll tell you what I want you to know. Just know that I'm God, so you better obey me. No, no, no. He has revealed himself to to us. He's showed us exactly what he's like by revealing revealing to us what he's like in the Son. He's a a God who desires to make himself known, and he's done that all through the Bible in different ways. In the Old Testament, he shows up in some pretty scary ways. Uh, The people of Israel one time say to Moses, hey, we want to see the Father just like you do. Uh, Can he show himself to us? And God's like, yeah, sure, bring him to the mountain. The mountain is covered with fire and smoke and thunder, and pretty much the people of Israel are like, you know what, never mind, it's cool. Moses, you you go and talk to him, just tell us what, what God says. But ultimately, the way God wants to reveal himself in the end is through a person. By taking on human flesh, the fullness of God, dwelling bodily in Jesus, just so that our finite human understanding can even begin to comprehend what it's like, the revelation. It's too high and lofty otherwise, and so he comes as a flesh and blood man in order to reveal to us, to speak to us in our own language, to reveal himself to us. And that in itself already reveals something to us about the nature and character of the Father, doesn't it? So, what does this reveal to us about the Father? What does Jesus reveal to us about the Father as we look at Him, as we look at His earthly ministry? I've already said it's too much. He reveals way too much, more than we could ever cover here. But we're going to look at those two things that Jesus reveals to us about the Father, that He is a just judge and that He is a gracious giver. So let's look, first of all, Jesus reveals the Father as a just judge, a just judge, really talking about his justice and his hatred of sin. Now, all of us have an innate uh, sense of justice within us and a desire to see it carried out to one degree or another. We all just have that 
instinctively in us. And I believe that's part of God's design of us. One of the ways that we reflect his nature is having, desiring justice. But as I've also said, there's nowhere that we see that probably more clearly than in kids. Because they are constantly overwhelmed by the unfairness of life and the unfairness of how everything's happening around us. I mean, we talked about uh, a few months ago, I mean, just, just the, the, the scariness of what it means to try and cut up a birthday cake at a party uh, and, and try to give out the exact same size pieces because these little Supreme Court justices, they're ready to hand out sentences of 25 to life if you would dare to give them a smaller piece than the last kid. That's, that's, how, that's how they go. So God's justice, how is that revealed? Now, all through the Bible, God's character is revealed in his actions as well as descriptions about him. You have places uh, like Exodus 34, 6, Describe God as this way. The Lord, He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Proverbs, we, we read about God is, is wisdom. He is ultimate wisdom. And then there's all through the Bible places that God has revealed as a God of justice, of true and holy justice. And actually, it's God's justice, that, that, that aspect of his attributes that it's the reason that God has to send Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden when they sin. That's one of the reasons he has to do that because now that they've sinned, because they're now terminally infected by this sin, them and all humanity can no longer be in his presence because he is holy. He cannot have sin in his presence, so he must send them out of the garden. One of the key things God shows us right after that day is he sets up various forms of the sacrificial system that develops itself until it reaches its full revelation in the people of Israel as they're heading towards the promised land. We read about this from Exodus all the way through Leviticus as God sets up the sacrificial system and how it is that we can still come to him. He shows us there that sin separates us from God and that it requires sacrifice. It requires the spilling of blood. It requires life for justice to be paid for those sins. One of the other things that God shows us as well is that much more than sin just saddening him or irritating him, like people calling me Mr. Parker, sin incites God's righteous wrath. It incites his wrath because it has infected his good creation. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1.18, he says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And isn't that really what sin is in the face of a holy, righteous God? Godlessness. It's the absence of God. But what's interesting to see is that in that same beautiful picture in Exodus 34, where it talks about God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, forgiving, the very next verse, do you know what it says? It says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Gracious and compassionate, forgiving, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. This is because God is a perfectly just judge. And in order to just be true to his own character, he needs to punish sin. It needs to be punished. And he must also punish sin just to be just. I mean, if God just winks at sin, it's just like, you know what? Hey, listen, I know you had a couple too many drinks last night, and you bereaved that family of their mother and father because you couldn't take a cab home. If he just said, you know what? But I know you didn't mean it. It was just a one-time accident. You know what? Just, just don't do that anymore and lets the man go free. That is by nature 
unjust. Nobody would call that justice. The offense must be punished somehow in order for justice to be paid. So, in that same sacrificial system that God set up, the sins of the people would be pronounced over an animal, and then that animal's life would be taken. Its blood would be spilled in order to pay the penalty for sin, which Romans 6.23 tells us is death. And yet what we saw a few weeks ago, as we looked at Jesus, first of all, revealed as the Son, as the child sent by God, Ultimately, we saw God knew the sacrifices of bulls and lambs could never ultimately pay the justice that needed to be paid. His justice could not ultimately be satisfied by those sacrifices. They only pointed ahead to a true and better sacrifice of God's lamb who would truly satisfy his just wrath against sin. So the message of Christmas then is that God took on flesh. He was made like his brothers in every way in order to become himself that one sacrifice that could actually satisfy his own justice. God satisfied his own justice in sending Jesus. Do you see now how in his coming to earth, Jesus reveals the Father, first of all, as a just judge, unwilling to pass over sin, but instead revealing God's deep, passionate hatred of sin, but as well also his plan from all eternity past to pronounce just judgment against sin, to crush the serpent's head and to, to free those who are captive from its curse by satisfying justice for us. But what we also see revealed here, we see revealed what well, we can understand at least in part, the magnitude of the horror and the anguish that Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane as he now stared down the barrel of God's just wrath against sin that was now pointed directly at him. Why he would tell his friends, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, that he would be in such anguish and prayer that he would sweat drops of blood as he was handed the cup filled with God's just wrath wrath against sin, knowing he would have to drink every last drop. In Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, it says this of Jesus, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. There's that justice language. His justice shall be satisfied. <coughs> By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. This is what our just judge was accomplishing for us in sending Jesus. It's also what Jesus reveals to us about the Father and his willingly coming to be slaughtered as that sacrifice as God's perfect lamb. Very simply, if this is God's attitude towards sin, as well as the profound cost that he would pay in order to bring about justice, then we see that Jesus is revealing a father who will stop at nothing to see justice accomplished, even at the cost of his own son. He will be true to his just nature at any cost. 
As Paul says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Which means that first of all, and this is the hard part about God's justice, whether it feels like it to us or not, God is always just in his treatment of us. He is always just in his treatment of us. And consequently, that means we ought to be a lot more careful, I think, when it comes in our own finite view of things, telling the just judge of the universe whether or not he's given us a big enough piece of cake. He is always just in his dealings with us. But what that also means is that he will be faithful. We can trust the Father to be just in all the places of injustice that we do face in this life. And don't we face many of them in many different ways. We do face injustice. We do face unfairness from the least of things to soul-crushing injustices committed against us. Because God is a just judge, we can trust. Jesus is showing us we can trust God that he will not just pass over those things. He will see that justice is done. Nobody's getting away with anything. He will bring it all to light and he will see that justice is done. That's what Jesus reveals to us as the Father, as a, a just judge. But maybe you're sensing the problem already. <laughs> because Jesus' revelation of the Father as a just judge, in the end, if that's all we knew about him, that's not actually good news to us. That's, that's terrifying news because if he is perfectly judging all sin, that means he's judging the sin in us too. Which is why it's so hopeful to us to see that Jesus also reveals the Father as a gracious giver. He's a gracious giver and a lover of sinners. That's become cliche, sadly, and actually offensive to a lot of people to speak of that that well-worn phrase in Christian lingo, love the sinner, hate the sin. Love the sinner, hate the sin. And yet, as we'll see in God's uh, revelation through Jesus of himself as a gracious giver, we'll see just how much we need that to be true. We need that to be true. Now, actually, we jumped in in John 14. John 13, all the way through John 17, is actually an extended, uh, uh, long, kind of John Denver, leaving on a jet plane, kind of farewell discourse of Jesus to his disciples. He, he knows that he's leaving now. He knows his hour has come and he's returning to the Father. In verse 2 of our passage there, we see is Jesus talking about, if I go to the Father, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going back there to do this. But implicit in the idea of returning somewhere, going back somewhere, is the idea that you had to come first, right? You don't, you don't return somewhere unless you've already come first. And in one of the most well-known verses that people have probably heard, we call it the end zone verse sometimes, John 3, 16, We read Jesus' famous words about his coming when he says, For God so loved the world that he gave. That he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Yet what we forget many times is the verse that comes right after verse 16, which describes the reason for his coming, for God's gracious sending of his gift in Jesus when Jesus says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's why he gave the son. 
We've already seen that God, because He's just, He does not leave sin unpunished. His justice is fully met in the death of Jesus. But what we see right now, Jesus revealing the Father, is that He's also a gracious giver. He's a gracious giver because, listen, at no time is Jesus just simply dying as some kind of supreme, ultimate, perfect sacrifice. Like God just created a big enough bomb in Jesus that could blow sin to smithereens. That's not what's happening. Jesus was taking on the sins of the world. That's whose sins he's paying for. He's taking on our sins. He is enduring and absorbing God's just wrath against us. That's why he was sent. In that very same passage that we looked at, we talked about in Isaiah 53, talked about God's justice being carried out in Jesus. Isaiah says it very clearly, this, speaking of this same son, he says, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In Jesus' coming, he reveals God the Father as a supremely gracious giver, given by God to satisfy the justice that God knew that we never could do for ourselves. Romans 3.23 describes it this way, the Father's gracious gift in sending Jesus. He says he sent Jesus so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's how he can be both. Jesus is just and that he does punish sin, and yet Jesus is the one who also is the justifier. He satisfies God's justice for us. God satisfies his own justice in sending Jesus as his gracious gift to us. And yet what makes this even more staggering is when we stand back for a second and look at not just the subject of God's gift, that, that, that Jesus, is, as God, would take on flesh and be sacrificed for the sins of the world, but the objects to whom God sends this gracious gift. Wicked, rebellious traitors who wanted nothing to do with God, people like you and I who would daily take God's stuff and claim it as our own. That's who he sent his gracious gift to. Romans 5, Paul describes it this way, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for, perhaps for a good person someone might even dare to die, but God demonstrates his love for us and his grace in this, that while we were yet sinners, while we were at our very worst, at our most rebellious, shaking our fist at him, spitting in his face, that then Christ died for us. He looked on us at our worst and said, oh, I love you. Wow. Jesus reveals to us who a father who is truly a gracious giver. One who gives all that he has in Jesus, not because of our worthiness to receive the gift, but in spite of it. Not because we were so lovely that he set his love on us, but he actually makes us lovely in his loving of us. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said it this way of God's gracious gift in Jesus. He said, the love of man, our love, it comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. 
Okay, so we see something lovely, we see someone lovely, we love them. Isn't that lovely? I love you. I love this. And yet, listen, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Do you know what that means? God doesn't look on us and say, oh, you're so lovely, so I'm going to love you. He says, in my loving of you, I'm making you lovely. I'm making you lovable in my loving of you. He doesn't find us lovable. He creates us to be lovely. The Father's gracious gift in sending Jesus perfectly satisfies His justice on our behalf. And it's also, as we've seen, profoundly gracious in that that justice was satisfied not simply for for those who were unworthy to receive it, but those who were ill-deserving, those who weren't even seeking His salvation. We were so blinded by our sin, we didn't even know we needed it. And yet the hopeful message of Christmas is that God sent the full, perfect revelation of himself, the full, perfect representation of himself and his son, Jesus, to earth, because to the same degree that he hates sin and must justly punish it, he also desperately loves his creation in captivity to sin. And he wants to make himself known perfectly. He wants to make his way of salvation known. And so he sends Jesus Loving the sinner, but hating the sin. That is ultimately what we see God doing in his gracious gift of Jesus that first Christmas 2,000 years ago. That's what he's accomplishing. Two final things that are just astounding to think of as it relates to Jesus coming as the Father's supreme revelation of himself. Isaiah's description of Jesus coming is that he will be called everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. John tells us in another one of his letters, in 1 John, that not only does God satisfy his justice in sending Jesus, suffering the death that we deserved, but he also adopts us into his family, makes us his sons and daughters. He says, See what kind of love the Father has for us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. We become the children of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He is the one who now for all time connects us to the fatherliness of God. Did you see, that's how God can be our everlasting Father because Jesus lives eternally. He now eternally connects us everlastingly to the fatherhood of God. So he will be now our everlasting Father because Jesus is everlasting. Second thing to see is that now as those sons and daughters of God, Jesus tells us this in John 20, 21. Maybe you know it. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So you know what that means. That means that just as the Father sent Jesus to be his revelation of himself to the world, Jesus is saying, I'm now sending you to be the revelation of me to the world. We are to be now his ambassadors, as Paul calls us in 2 Corinthians 5, as though God were making his appeal through us. What a high calling. It makes you wonder about the wisdom of God that he would call us to do that because we're always going to fail at that. There's no way we can represent Jesus to the world the way that he represented the Father to the world. And yet he still calls us. And I believe he empowers us to do that, and that should always be our aim. That should be our focus, whether or not we're going to do it perfectly or not. And haven't we been given more than enough 
warrant and motivation to make this our aim through life. We are continually undeserving, pardoned rebels, constantly in need of His grace, and that those who have been given this gracious gift yet of God, His revelation in the Son, Jesus, making us His sons and daughters, satisfying His wrath, I'd say that's sufficient warrant to offer our lives to at least try to say, to look at our everyday activities and say, am I representing Jesus in the way I'm speaking to this person? Am I representing Jesus? Am I revealing him to the way I love my spouse and my kids? As the hymn writer says so perfectly, love so amazing and so divine is this, it demands my soul, my life, my all. 